One of the huge catalysts in this area, Minter, is where senior players, people of high profile, speak out openly in social media channels or in the media in general to show that it's okay and to show that actually vulnerability is something that doesn't undermine you as a performer. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 366. Today is Sunday the 29th of March 2020 and this interview, while recorded before the pandemic arrived, is a most timely one. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Dr. Phil Hopley, who's an MD, psychiatrist, revered coach, speaker, and well-being and performance expert. In his youth, he was a legendary player for the famed Wasp Rugby Club, having been capped 57 times and scored 113 points for them. He founded and now runs Cognacity, a leading health and performance consultancy based in London. In this conversation with Phil, we discuss the values and role of rugby in his life, the issues of mental health for high-performance athletes and in parallel top executives, how to build resilience and confidence, all the while accepting vulnerability. We also look at the issues of loneliness today, why and how to focus on one's values and find meaning. You'll find all the show notes as usual on mentordial.com. Please think to rate us if you like the show and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the interview. Dr. Phil. Do they ever call you that, Dr. Phil? Dr. Phil Hopley. Pleasure to have you on the show. You are a psychiatrist, coach, speaker of great renown. I've seen you in action. You're also a well-being and performance expert and a wasp legend that would be rugby wasp phil in your own words how do you describe yourself uh well minter lovely to be here and um thank you for that intro yes people do sometimes call me dr phil i describe myself as being quite a sort of a man of a broad church really i trained as a doctor specialized in psychiatry and i've evolved from that i still help people with a range of mental health problems but i'm very interested these days in understanding the link between stress pressure the way in which we work, and how that can put us under pressure in a way that can be adverse for our health and well-being. So in other words, how can people proactively look after themselves? So there's this word of stress. I mean, at the end of the day, we get stressed a lot, but sometimes stress is good. Absolutely. And um, without stress, we underperform. We absolutely need to be stretched. We need to feel that there's something to be striving for, to reach for. And if you see um, phases that people go through in their lives, there'll often be times when they move away from stress, either through choice or through circumstance. And the, the common experience, if people are in good mental health and performing well, is that they find a drop-off in their ability to do things. So the personal example for this for me would be after qualifying as a doctor, spending my first year working quite intensely at junior doctor level, 60, 70 hours a week, I then had a short gap of a few months where I wasn't in employment. I was waiting to start a training scheme. At the time, I was physically very fit, playing senior level rugby in the UK. And what I noticed was that without that structure and demand, the need to mm. get up and go to a job and to do things, my level of productivity fell away very quickly. I would hear the alarm go in the morning, my flatmate would go off to work, I'd go back to sleep. The highlight of the day would be getting the evening standard first edition, which came out around 12.30 in those days, maybe do the crossword. This was pre-Sudoku, didn't have that pleasure. And so that was it for me. The lesson was you need demands. 
people talk about in this era of everyone wanting to have self-actualization and and fulfillment and yet i hear in what you the thing i pick up is this notion of 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 structure uh, i, I want to think about being told what to do so in a world of self-actualization you're sort of your master of your own world and the other one you're being in an army and being told what to do how do you reconcile those two ideas so I'm a Libran by birth, so clearly balance is the key for me. It works for me, and I think it's what people need to aim for in life because if you do things too much one way, too much the other way, chances are it's not going to have the desired effect. So yes, you need structure, you need to be organized, you need to be working towards things. But if that regimented approach is black or white, all or nothing, extreme in the way it's applied, unfortunately that lends ourselves to a situation where we're pressurizing ourselves more than we need to. So for me it's all about balance, Minter. So I have in my family numerous doctors, none psychiatrists, but um, surgeon, cardiopulmonary critical care, and friends of well doing NHS and so on. And my observation is that as a trainer, trainee, it could hardly be a, a less inviting type of environment in terms of the stress that's put on you, the number of hours you work, not to mention the fact that you're sometimes in dire, critical situations. Do you feel that the medical profession is actually taking mental health on board as well? And, and because at the end of the day, <laughs> you're providing the health advice and so on, but it seems like it's a little bit the cobbler with poor shoes on. So we're moving slowly in the right direction. As a medical student back in the 1980s in London, we had modules where we looked at mental health, but really the focus there was on illness. How do you help people with severe mm -hmm. illnesses, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, major depression, etc.? There was no component to looking after one's own well-being. If we fast forward now to the 2020s, most children coming out of school from the age of 14, 15 have had as part of their PSHE curricula information and learning on mental well-being, resilience it's sometimes called. So that cohort are actually much more informed than people in the sort of 10 and 20 years above them. And what we need to do is just to close that gap. Right. I'm not actively in touch with medical education programs. My understanding is things are picking up a little, but certainly the pressures that apply to junior doctors, notwithstanding changes with European time working directives and limiting how much you work, still put people under huge amounts of pressure that can be very difficult to bear. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 let's say I'm drumming the beat in business of, of bringing in empathy and, and bringing in mental health, and, and yet we have 10-minute rendezvous with our NHS doctor, and that, that is a very stressful thing for the doctor as well. Absolutely. I mean, putting time constraints on these things is necessary because we have time limits. We have only so much time we can work with people. But my view from the way that the world of the corporate um, operator is changing is that there is a better understanding now, not just of the importance of mental health, as in when people are struggling, they need to get good help and quickly, which clearly they do, but of being preventative and proactive. What can we as individuals learn that can enable us to be more protected against the negative effects of working in the 24-7 economy, digital connectedness, etc.? And that dial is definitely shifting. Long way to go, but we're definitely moving in the right direction. All right, well, I probably want to get into that in a little bit, but I do want to snap into some rugger. Um, I believe that you believe this is my perspective, that rugby is a great values-based sport. 
that certainly felt like the case when you and I were growing up. You stayed in touch with it. Do you believe that? And do you still believe that? I mean, there have been recent events that would throw that into sharp sort of um, relief and question. But yes, I do believe that. I think that looking back on my career as a rugby player, starting probably at the age of seven, eight, Mm -hmm. nine, there was definitely this sense back in those days that teamwork, pulling together, not putting yourself as the most important person on the park were the elements that were going to enable a team to perform at its best. And you could see with outstanding individuals that sometimes that would be a clash and they Mm. wouldn't be able to necessarily find their place in the team. And some teams with the best players really weren't the best teams. Mm -hmm. So I do think that there's a lot we can learn, particularly from the teamwork element of sport. But then there's also the element about how you can go out and you can be in really quite sharp, marked conflict with physical interventions, with clashes physically of hard tackling, of people being handed off, of people being trod on. And yet after the game, when this is done in the right way, all of that negativity can be put to one side and you can embrace the opponents and you can share the experience, come win or lose. Yeah, so at the end of the day, or that, so I, I feel like that the fact that it was a physical in, injury, we don't take that personally. What we have to deal with so often, though, are invisible injuries and abuse in a work environment. I mean, let's say if your captain screams at you, fail you, you fooled up you you know that that's a physical that's a mental abuse in business we don't have the benefit of a broken arm because someone tackled me and oh of course you don't want a broken arm but you know like a, a bruise um it, do you feel that there's a an ability for rugby to help with or that type of philosophy with regard to non-visible abuse Yeah, so if I just explain a little bit about the work that I do with the Rugby Players Association. So that's the association that looks after all of the premiership players and the players that play for the women's international setup and the sevens. And these are pros? And these are professional players, all full-time professionals. Um, And the business I run, Cognacity, runs our confidential helpline and any of those players can access the help that they need at any stage. And what's happened over the last 10 years that we've been doing this work is stigma has fallen and people have been much more prepared to come forward and talk about the difficulties they've got. One of the huge catalysts in this area, Minta, is where senior players, people of high profile, speak out openly in social media channels or in the media in general to show that it's okay Mm -hmm. and to show that actually vulnerability is something that doesn't undermine you as a performer. Now, are we seeing that in the corporate world? Mm, slowly. We're, we're moving in that direction. Certain organizations that we work with doing similar work, where you've got leadership that understands the importance of well-being and people at the heart of businesses, they are making great strides forward. But there's a lot of work yet to be done. Mm. So you posted on your Twitter feed Danny Cipriani's uh, ode, I want to say, to his friend, who took her life. Uh, I can't remember her name, Kate, someone, you'll remind me. And, and, and you talked about the courage it took to do that. Talk us through why that was courageous and, and how that can help move the dial forward to, to use your term. So if we turn back in time and we think about some of the positives in rugby, the values we were talking about before, some of the negatives which apply equally to other team sports is that that need to be the max kismo, strong, emotionless character was pretty pervasive. And that still occupies the world of competitive and elite sport. Mm. 
And so in my view, Danny Cipriani, to be able to speak out and talk about his own vulnerability was incredibly brave mm. because people watch and listen to what their sporting heroes talk about. Mm. I forget how many years ago, probably six or seven years ago, Duncan Bell, the former Bath and England prop forward, he'd just come to the end of his career as a player and he made a declaration to his teammates at Bath about the struggles he'd had with depression for a number of years. As a player? As a player. And he had been very anxious about this disclosure, and it went down incredibly well. The emotional support that he received after that was overwhelming. Tears were shed amongst the players there and then, to the extent that he decided he wanted to make this a national statement. And with the help of the RPA, he recorded a video that went out on social media channels. I know Duncan quite well, and what was interesting was that he was delighted with the number of people that contacted him, quite often young men, saying, thank you so much. I would never have considered seeking help or speaking to someone had I not seen someone like you go through that process. The other angle to that that was interesting was that I think he hadn't anticipated how tricky the situation could be and to be actually contacted by people saying, I'm struggling, what do I do? Which tells us something very important about signposting to help. Anyone that's putting messages out there, as Danny did, was giving a very clear message, if you're struggling seek help, speak to your GP, speak to a friend, speak to anybody, because on the whole, talking about these difficulties is going to at least take some of the steam and the pressure out of what you're feeling. And it's funny that we're talking about rugby, such a sort of a virile and uh, machismo type sport, and perhaps that's part of why it's so interesting in rugby to see this. My experience with, with the rugby man from France, who you presumably know was Denis Charvet, and, and he said the worst moment of my life was the whistle that blew at Cardiff when his international career was over. And it, it makes me think of also another issue, which is how do you define yourself, your identity? And in business, the parallel is I'm retiring. And, and who am I if I'm not the CEO? The French talk about le petit mot in a certain context, <laughs> and I think Denis Charvet there was talking about le grand mot. He was an amazing player, by the way. One of my heroes that I looked up to, Cellar at the same time, what a, what a combination they were. Yeah. yeah, he described it beautifully. What we see from research in the world of the elite sportsmen and women, which is exactly the same as the corporate world, is that for the first two to three years after stepping down, doesn't really matter what level you've played at. You don't need to have been an international, but if, you, if that's been your career, you go through a significant period of turmoil. The rates of mental health problems, the rates of emotional distress are high, well above what you'd expect for an age-matched population. Why is that? The research hasn't really been done to the level that we can say with certainty, but my clinical experience, having worked with so many sportsmen and women, is that because of the intensity of their careers to date, their identity is tightly bound around their role as a sports person. And of course, they're stepping away from that. What we're trying to teach sportsmen and women is that they have a range of fantastic transferable skills, leadership, communication, mm -hmm. empathy, and ability to stay to focused on tasks and to work hard at things, which they can take with them into different areas. And many of the transitioning athletes I've worked with have done absolutely fantastically. And they've been so surprised because so many of them develop what we call the imposter syndrome. Mm. They've gone from one area of strength to an area where they really don't feel they have any validity at all. Mm. But those core strengths which are transferable are so important. The same applies to people coming up to retirement at the end of a long career. In many ways, it's kind of because they've worked in those roles 
trials for longer, the challenge can be more difficult. More and, and I'm always, always encouraging the clients and patients I work with to think about what is it in their lives that gives them value and meaning. Mm-hmm. because those are the things that they need to be moving their focus onto. They have the benefit of time that they never had before, and they really must use it rather than putting their feet up and playing golf. Yeah. I'm thinking that in the physical world, the hormonal um, activities in your body related to the cortisone, possibly cortisol, I don't know, because I'm, I'm not a doctor, as you can tell, but... The, these physical aspects, when you have to sort of sit behind a desk, it does. that's a harder thing to get a grip on. And the other one more relates, in my view, to confidence as you try to build resilience. And I would love to know what the, the relationship is between confidence and resilience. Yeah, I'll give myself as a, as a personal example, if you'll indulge me. But as, sure. a, as a young kid, I was incredibly shy. Literally the boy that would hide behind the mother's skirt. Li- li- Presumably you weren't short, because <laughs> you can't see, but you is you's a tall man. <laughs> you know, I was until we went on holiday to America when I was about 12 or 13. <laughs> I spent the summer eating junk food, and I came back, and I was literally six or eight inches taller. Teachers couldn't believe it. But I was still shy. And because I suddenly became tall, I used to stoop. I didn't like standing out. Um, And my own experience was to develop a set of skills which in the modern era would be recognized as kind of cognitive work, cognitive and behavioral work that therapists would do to challenge a lot of those automatic thoughts. And people that meet me in the last 20 years would say I'm an extremely confident and um, kind of I back myself in situations I'd have no problems going into a room where I knew nobody. But the reality is that that confidence is really a manifestation of our behaviors. Because inside, we can feel so different to how we portray ourselves outside. This is the key. And there's a phrase which I don't particularly like, but it is relevant here, fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people with anxiety-based problems, not necessarily mental illness, but just things that get in the way, by learning to overcome those negative automatic thoughts mm-hmm. and also by learning to control that stress response you talked mm-hmm. about, cortisol releasing adrenaline, making us feel the fight-or-flight response, that makes a massive difference. And I often say to people I'm working with, think about how you felt before something really exciting you were going to do. It might mm-hmm. be playing in a sporting event. It might be going to a, see a nice show or seeing someone you haven't seen for a long time. That feeling comes to the top of your head, goes down the back. Yeah, well, some people get that. Some people, for me, I get butterflies in my tummy. Mm-hmm. Some people feel a little bit lightheaded. It, it's, it's all these manifestations of our sympathetic nervous system. And then I say to them, and how do you feel before that thing you're fearful of? And guess what? It's exactly the same. So this is just a biological response mm. that we're adding meaning to. So mm. we can change that meaning. We can definitely change how we feel about something. And lo and behold, our confidence will grow and grow. So... Looking in your eyes, as I am even in this audio thing, uh, recording that we're doing, so much seems to pass through the eyes when you are communicating your state. And it, it, it feels like a very sensitive, as in it really gets what's going on behind you, and very therefore difficult thing to fake in the eyes. Yeah, it's so as a psychiatrist, one of the things you're trained in when you're assessing somebody's mental state is to pay very close attention to all the manifestations of their verbal but also their nonverbal behavior. 
very commonly we see with people who are depressed that their gaze is downcast. Mm -hmm. They can't look in the eye of another person mm -hmm. because perhaps their self-esteem is low, they feel unworthy, they don't have the confidence to engage literally. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right, Mintra, I think that the eyes are very much the windows to the soul. We see so much of what someone is like. People that um, profess to be experts in lying who work for MI5 or for the FBI, they'll always take the, the polygraph tests, but they'll be paying particular attention to what's happening around eye contact and, and facial mm. movement. So I think you're absolutely right. And it's, a, it's an area where people who quite often feel lacking in confidence and won't look at someone, I think of a number of my patients who've come to me in very distressed states over the years, it's only through a process of kind of exposure and encouragement and seeing that actually the fear that they anticipate is not fulfilled, they can overcome that hang up. Yeah, well, like they, they, they won't look engaged in your eyes because they fear judgment and so on. So in this world of mental health, which around which you work so much, let's say that one narrative is that there's a lot more mental health issues today than there was in the past. We've, in the United Kingdom, nominated a minister of loneliness. There's another narrative that says, well, we're just paying more attention to it. We've got a name for it. Now it exists more. Where do we sit? Has mental health always been an issue, just put under the rug because, you know, just stiff upper lip it? Or is, is there an issue today where we have more issues and mental health is a bigger storm in a teacup? Yeah, the debate rages on. I mean, I'm a great believer that things haven't changed massively, but that we've got much better at talking about it, spotting it, measuring it, and studying it. That said, there are one or two factors related to how society has evolved over time, and we'll talk about loneliness as part of that, um, which I believe are making a material difference to the risk of people developing mental health problems. Our approach always is to look at preventing that. So what are the things we can put in place that are inexpensive, that are available to all of us? My sense is that digital technology is a great development for mankind, but if it's not used in the right way, potentially it is difficult. The research on the impact of social media on the mental health of teenagers is actually quite mixed. Most people believe that it affects young women and young men's self-esteem, the whole thing about the idealized presentation, what you put out to the world on Facebook and Instagram, etc. But actually there are some studies that show that that social connectedness can be a good thing. Where I see it being a particular challenge is in the transition from school to university. My clinic in the last two to three years, and my colleagues will vouch for me on this, sees so many first and second year university students. Why is that? Again, we don't really know, but the strong sense is that here is a cohort who've grown up in a kind of different environment where perhaps their ability to make and sustain social links is not as well established in the real world as it is in the virtual digital world. And when they move away from the safe, and most people live in very safe and very protected environments these days compared to 25 years ago, to university, their ability to reconnect or to make fresh links with a supportive social network are not so good. And then lo and behold, rates of anxiety and depression seem to be on the rise. And I think that's a significant factor makes me think of the people who don't go to university, go straight from high school or, you know, public school into work and what type of abandonment they have of the safe place into a work environment. Because if university's tough, I have to imagine work life is even less forgiving. 
I mean, I think it's hard to compare the two and very interesting um, data that came out recently about the value of university degrees because they're so much more available now. There's a certain point below which your kind of um, benefit in terms of your future career is questionable. I think the difficulty in comparing university life to those who go directly into work is as follows. Unless you're following one of these vocational careers, so you're doing medicine or law, where the the demands hours-wise are highly significant, there's every chance that you've got big chunks of empty space in your week. So what are you doing during that time? And I think that for the university students is one of the biggest challenges if you haven't got an interest in sport, music, drama or a social network to connect to. If you compare that to the school leavers that are going to work, at least they've got the structure we talked about earlier. So they've got something to focus on. What they're exposed to, though, are the demands of having to perform in a way that they have not really had to perform yeah, before academically yes they've had to kind of you know pull themselves together and get through GCSEs and A-levels but as we all know it is not the same as going into a work environment where there are potential difficulties with colleagues with supervisors with seniors with deadlines etc. Yeah, so work provides kind of an antidote to the loneliness issue where you also have a kind of an embedded community of people to hang out with you have a structure when it comes to loneliness there are people that say that well it's not always a problem there are some very active people that just delight in those moments of quietness because the extrovert actually also takes strength from loneliness at times. Are, are we overblowing the issue of loneliness? What's your opinion? Well, possibly. I mean, I go back to my point made much earlier about the importance of balance. I have some fantastic colleagues who are the most incredible trainers and they run workshops in big global organizations for groups of people that make a difference to these people's lives. But because some of them are a bit on the introvert side of the scale, they get absolutely exhausted by that experience. And they talk about literally having to have hours of downtime to reset themselves. Mm. People who are maybe a little bit further up the extrovert scale, they kind of thrive off that. And they conversely would find too much downtime and non-contact with people really difficult. So it varies from person to person. A lot of it is to do with the way in which we respond to people around us. So, Dr. Phil, Cognacity, the company uh, you founded, if I understand correctly, and run, tell us, um, you, you work with the RSA, the Rugby uh, Association. What are the things you do? Uh, how, what does the day of Dr. Phil look like? <laughs> the, the days, I'm very pleased to say, because I've probably got mild attention deficit disorder, Minter, um, very He says revealing me. <laughs> um, they vary enormously. So I would so this morning I've I've spent the morning in, in Chelsea, uh, running a clinic where I've seen a range of people with a, a range of different problems from depression, anxiety through drug and alcohol problems, and I do that about half of the week. The rest of the week I oversee the business which works in the corporate and the elite sports space, and we've moved from just being reactive to being proactive. A lot of our work is one-to-one coaching or workshop-based training programs where we take an organization or a group within organizations through a program of maybe 18 months to two years where they work on, first of all, their personal well-being and resilience. We teach them the basic cognitive and behavioral skills. You've probably heard of ACT, ACT, um, acceptance, commitment uh, theory, a very, very work-based 
workplace-based effective set of interventions to help people apply mindfulness and other self-help approaches to enable themselves to sustain their performance. And we work through those programs with, with organizations who are really interested in not just their people, but measuring the impact of the work that's being done with their people. Because lots of us have had the opportunity to attend a training day where you fill in your form and then you go away and you don't think about it again. I think about my own CPR training where I have to do cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And How many I, fingers <laughs> Exactly. I hope not to have to use it each year. But um, we did some research a few years ago with the University of Surrey and we were delighted to see that we could demonstrate sustainable impact in people's resilience in certain domains six months after they'd spent just half a day doing training with us. And that's the kind of difference that we seek to make. Yeah, so a lasting effect. When you are looking at a company and, and, and trying to help them with proactive work, to what extent does this have to happen at the individual level and at the top level? Yeah, balance is key again. We have found with a number of organizations where unless they embrace it at the top, unless the board or the senior directors, senior executives are behind a program, the sense of people lower down who are being offered these opportunities is why me, what's happening, why am I being judged? So we've learned the importance of engaging the leadership first and foremost. But from there, and, and with them as well, the key starting point, which I think reassures a lot of organizations, is this is not about the organization changing the way it allocates work. This is not about the organization changing the way they appraise performance. It's about individuals understanding that if they make small but sustainable changes in their thinking style and their behaviors, they will cope better with the demands that are inevitably around them. Just for last question, Phil, about this notion of vulnerability in work. We were talking about Danny's situation and, and um, Bell and, and so on. And then feeling that by revealing I, I had a weakness or at least I had this mental health issue, I'm a lesser person, I'm a lesser man, I'm, I'm less confident. In work, it, it still feels a total taboo, the idea of crying as a man in work. Um, you know, and, and suggesting that I'm not perfect or I have weaknesses we're so far away from that. Uh, how, do, how does one even approach that when you're talking about typically testosterone-filled, bravado-imbued type of men? It's very difficult, Minter, I'll be honest with you. And on my personal journey, I was returning from an international conference recently, and I watched the Downton Abbey film. Here's a disclosure for the listeners. Hmm. And it was a tearjerker for me. And I sat there in business class very comfortably. Nobody could see me because you've got plenty of space, sobbing away. And as the hair hostess walked past, to begin with, I thought, oh, goodness, you know, mustn't let her see me crying. And it's time when I, th I was reflecting really on what mm. Danny Cipriani had said about Caroline Flack and the importance of being connected with our emotions and not being frightened by them. It's, it's, there's a long way to go on this journey. And I wouldn't be saying to people, you must at every opportunity get the box of tissues out and mm. demonstrate how emotional you're feeling. But I think in the right context for someone to, to be able to demonstrate that they're an effective leader, an effective manager, a very competent practitioner or specialist in what they're doing, and they can be comfortable with their emotions, that is what we're striving for. Where should this start? It should start at home. And in particular, it should start with parental role models. How many, and I include my wife and myself in this, how many of us are good at acknowledging negative emotions that we have to our children? 
not that many of us. It's really important for kids to know it's fine to cry. It's fine to be angry. It's fine to be struggling inside. As long as you know that these are transient states mm -hmm. and they won't have long-lasting damaging effects. Most of the work we do is about encouraging people to recognize fear because fear is one of the biggest blocks to people engaging with things in a meaningful way. This in a world where we're crowded by it. I wanted to tell you one last thing, which is that there is a thing called the business class closet weeper. I've read about it because I'm one of those too. How can anyone track you down, use your services, get in touch with Cognacity, Phil? Just Google cognacity.co.uk, you'll find us, and we'd be happy to speak to anyone about any of these matters. So I'll be putting all those things in the show notes. Phil, great to have you on the show. Thanks a lot for coming over and spending some time with us. Quality time. I uh, appreciate it, and looking forward to staying in touch. Minta, thank you so much. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minta Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on mintadial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.